So you do not need to know the sequence of a virus to act. Or you could also say in another way that, that knowing the sequence does not change no. what you need to do. Hello, welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. My name is Peter Best. And I'm joined for this podcast by Dr. Paul Henning Ratkin of Boehringer Ingelheim Nordic. We will be talking about the porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, PERS, and in particular the identification of the viral types encountered on a farm. Dr. Ratkin, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. It's first uh, has been my passion for for more than 25 years now, so I'm happy to to share some of my experiences uh, with this uh, with this disease, very interesting disease that keep challenging us. Thank you. Before you started working for Boehringer, in fact, uh, you were yourself a swine veterinary practitioner in Denmark, weren't you? Yeah, I was a practitioner for 15 years. Uh, so I've been working with with person practice, also uh, both trying to control and, and uh, also uh, eliminate it. And I still think of myself as a kind of practitioner. So I know I've been in a different world for the last uh, 15 years when I talk about PERS, but I still um, try to maintain my, my practical view on PERS. But going, you don't have to go very far back to say that identifying PERS virus seemed very simple. We were talking about essentially two types that seem to be uh, somewhat different genetically and, and different in their locations around the world. But we didn't seem to, at that stage, know too much about the diversity within those types. Was that right? Are, were you identifying virus types yourself on the farm when you were a practitioner? Yeah, when, when I was a practitioner, we were happy if we could just tell if it was a, a type 2 or a type 1. That was all we, we needed to know. And from that, we basically made our decisions, uh, both on vaccines or what we wanted to do. Um, it's then, a bit different now, then. Now it's completely different. Um, and you could say today, we, for, for me, then for many years, we, we increased our knowledge to look more specifically into the genetics of each of these types. But still, even now and then, we have jumps in our knowledge, and all of a sudden, we need to know more because we, we use yeah. the... Yeah. the knowledge in a different way. Yeah. So from the point of view of a veterinary practitioner, please, how often would someone today want to be identifying a particular PERS virus and for what purpose? I think in most cases, the, the knowledge is not needed. So on a daily basis, you don't necessarily need to know more than if it's a type 1 or type 2. But as soon as you want to, to tell about the origin of the virus or where could it come from, then you need to know more than if it's just a type 1 or type 2. You need to be more specific. And that's when we, it, the PERS virus is really starting triggering us. And, and the knowledge we get is all of a sudden too little. But I referred briefly before to diversity of viruses. I mean, you, you've got many, many possible candidates out there, I should imagine now, that could come out of your identification process. Is that right? There are many, many uh, subtypes or, or variants 
out there, which would give you cause. And this diversity, I think, is true for both type one and type two, isn't it? The, the diversity is increasing for both types. And for many years, I think we we thought that maybe the diversity in type two was uh, much uh, more than in type one. But that was probably because we did more sequencing uh, in U.S., where the main type is type two. And then over the last years, we started to, uh, to sequence much more in Europe. And now we have found out that diversity in type one is even way bigger than in type two. Uh, and it's increasing all the time because the virus, every time it replicates, it's mutating, it's recombining. So just from that point of view, it's like a, a cloud that is spreading. It will be, the diversity will be bigger and bigger. And uh, this is not something that's happened very recently. This is throughout the period of evolution of PERS viruses that this is happening, that this huge diversity has occurred. Yeah, that's, that it has been there for, right from the beginning. Yes. It's not a new a feature of PERS virus that all of a sudden it started to mutate or yes, it all yes. of a sudden it started to recombine. Yes, yeah. But but we were not uh, aware of it in the same uh, sense as we are now. Yes. Uh, the more se sequencing we do, the more we find out that it's mutating and, and recombining. And for many, many years, we were just looking into a very small part of the genome and then we, we thought it was, uh, you could say, relative stable. Now that the tools are there, that we can look at uh, much bigger parts, and all of a sudden we understand that we have been more or less blinded. We didn't see very much of what was happening. For our friends out there listening to this today, you talked about sequencing. If you wouldn't mind, for my benefit, just remind me, what do you mean by sequencing, please, in this context? Yeah, so the PERS virus has some uh, what we call open reading frames. And we use these open reading frames to look at the composition of the specific nucleotides. So in which order do they come? And that order is uh, specific for each virus. And now if we know that order, we can now compare that order in different viruses. So basically we can put them up on, uh, put all the, the order in a line and then from one virus and we can then take uh, the order of the nucleotides from another virus and completely uh, make a complete comparison of these two. And now we're able to see if they are completely identical or if uh, a few nucleotides are different in one or the other. That would normally be what we see in under, on a normal conditions. But all of a sudden, one virus take a big chunk from another virus where it replicates. And all of a sudden we have a creation of a completely new one, and that's what we call a recombination. I see. But you talked about uh, this uh, result, but I would like to know, you're taking a sample from somewhere and you're sending it to a lab, are you? Or are you doing it yourself? And how long does that take? Could I ask you just to say with sequencing, what is the process in, in practical terms, please? So yeah, you take a sample, uh, you send it to the laboratory, the laboratory do a, a PCR test and identify the virus. So now they know that they have a virus and they know more or less how it looks like. Then you put some uh, primers to look into the specific nucleotides. Uh, usually we looked into a very small part. 
because we thought that would be enough to identify. Like uh, if you have a family and you think, if I just know the last name of these, uh, this family, I'm fine. I know yeah. how they are. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden we, we know that that's not enough. We need to know more than that. But so the, just the sequencing or in what we call the open reading frame five, the uh, 606 nucleotides, that takes only a few days. And that relates to a particular glycoprotein, does it? In uh, open reading, yeah. off, I'm yeah. going to say that's off five. The, the open reading frame of uh, the structural protein, that's yes. what we look into. Yes. Um, but how reliable is this? You've talked about quite fine differences in identity, according to what I'm hearing you say. Is this a very reliable process? It is a reliable process if you, uh, you could say, correct yourself. So if you did it just once um, and do not look for uh, if, if the sequence you get is correct, how can you show that it's correct, to put it in another word? Yes. So when you have a set of nucleotides, you can read it from left to the right, basically, and then you can read it again uh, from the right to the left, so back and forth. And of course, you need to end up with the same results. What, uh, what good labs would then do, they would not be satisfied with doing this only once. They would probably do it three times. And then if you get exactly the same sequence of nucleotides, then you say, okay, I know exactly what this virus looks like. Sometimes you could have two viruses in the sample and that they are mixing up. And because they're mixing up, you wouldn't get the same results when you uh, read it back and forth, so to say. And now you know that something's wrong. You know, maybe you don't know exactly what's wrong, but you know that yeah. either you have two viruses or your reading of the nucleotide sequence is wrong. Yes, yeah, but also, if I may, the comparison has to be with your results, with the database you have. You have to have a, a library of identities with which to compare your results. Is that correct? Yeah. So when you have a sequence from one virus, then you can start, or, or from several viruses, you can start to build a library. You could build your own library of sequences that you would then be able to compare. But you can also go to uh, GeneBank. It's a place where yeah. sequences are uploaded from other scientists, uh, researchers, or labs. And then you can use them for comparison. And then there's uh, other tools, for example, um, um, University of California built uh, a bioportal, a disease bioportal, where you can, you can have a, a project, build a project where you could upload your own sequences, or you can go together with others and, and build your library of sequences to have something to compare with. So just having one sequence from one virus doesn't give you a lot of information. So you only know something when you are able to compare it with something else, with at least another one another virus or, or 10 other viruses. Yes. You are listening to Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline.
So let's go on to that. Uh, we're talking, therefore, about looking at the, the, the phylogenetic analysis, I think is how it's described, of the, of the virus's identity as characterized by this ORF5, this open reading frame. Uh, so is this a very time-consuming process between taking the sample and getting a result back with the interpretation? Is, does that take a long time, or is it very automated now? It's it's uh, quite automated, so it would not take a long time. You could um, within a week, you would have um, the sequence of the virus you submitted to the lab, and uh, then they you can you can start the comparison. You can ask the the lab to do some comparison, but you could also go uh, into to uh, gene bank or other places to, to look for it. And there are tools out there that you can use uh, on your own, so you can. You could uh, use BioPortal. It's uh, it's open for everybody to 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 use that. Um, it's that a tool. public public access. It's a public yeah. access, yeah. Yes. And then there are some some uh, some you could say um, some sequences there already. Uh, for example, the vac different vaccines would already uh, be in uh, in the library, so you can start the comparison. Yes. Is it an expensive process to have done? If, if you're a, a veterinary practitioner advising a farm, would you be re considering the cost to be one of the big limitations of today? It's still um, sort of expensive. The prices for a sequence in, in UF05 would, would vary between uh, labs. So, yes, it's relatively expensive uh, compared to just get... Uh, you could say just get a PCR results that shows yes. that you have a virus yes. if it's one or two. Yes. Uh, it's an additional cost. So if you don't need it, there's no no reason to do it. Yes. Uh, just so, for fun, you would yes, say. Yes, yeah. And so let's get on to that about its value. So uh, first of all, what is its value in veterinary diagnosis regarding PERS? What would you say the primary value in practice is? Yeah, so this, this tool is, first of all, it's an epidemiological tool. And it's good for that. It's good to study uh, how PERS virus has moved, for example, within your farm or to have come in where it could come from. So if you have um, a PERS infection in your farm and you wonder where could it come from, um, you can go then into the sequencing and then if you know the virus uh, composition of your neighbor, what they have in their farm, or what would be in the area, or has this PERS virus been in this country before, then you can start to get an idea of, of where it could come from. But there's, there's limitations to what you can use it for as well, of course. But it's, first of all, it's an epidemiological tool, and therefore, in, in, in many cases, um, it's it's more for researchers than for the daily practical use. It's certainly not a, an everyday tool even today. It is when an episode demands investigation that yeah. uh, you, you would suggest that's where it has its value now. Yeah, for example, if you, uh, let's say you're a vet and you are looking after uh, several farms in, in different areas. Uh, and you know that they all are they're pers positive and they have virus circulating, and then you could start to to look into where uh, are they sharing 
some uh, purse viruses. So could there be a common origin? Do they have transportation that could carry purse virus around? Is there animals coming from one farm to another that carry purse virus? Or would it have a, has it been brought in with semen? So that kind of investigation you could use it for. So kind of a, a biosecurity tool to check your biosecurity, how good am I in my external biosecurity? So that's one way to use it. Uh, if I, in my farm, I have identified a purse virus and the next month I do another sequencing and now I find a new virus and next month a new virus again. Then you know you're bringing in new viruses to the farm all the time and probably you should have a closer look into your biosecurity, your external biosecurity. On the other hand, if you identify purse virus in your farm and it continues continue to be the same month after month or maybe year after year, you know at least you're not bringing something in from the outside. You, have, you are maintaining what you have, and then you should probably look more into your management and your internal biosecurity. So that's another way you could use it. So internal epidemiological uh, investigations. I understand, but uh, are you suggesting then it could be done uh, as a, a matter of course every six months or a year to see whether the situation has changed? Or are you saying look at the clinical situation and then make a decision from that? No, I would, I would suggest that if you want to use sequencing in a farm or in a production, then you need to repeat it continuously. Maybe not every year, but, but, but no, every month, but every half a year or once a year. Check what you have in your farm. Has it changed over time? Uh, so that it gives you a hint if you need to look into biosecurity. Just doing a sequence once doesn't give you a lot of information, actually. Let's talk about biosecurity then, on to the practical aspects. So you've used sequencing, you've identified what has happened or has appeared to happen at these diagnosis checkpoints along your production flow. And you want to look at your biosecurity in that regard, particularly as regards PR uh, PERS. Would you have a starting point as a practitioner? What's the first thing that one should be saying to the farmer about checking biosecurity? What's the first step to check biosecurity? So we, we have built a tool, uh, Combat, and, and the, f the first step is to, to, to go into uh, an investigation of your external biosecurity and your internal biosecurity and your management and pick flow. We build a tool to look at the risky events you could have in that. In uh, When we talk about this and want to use uh, per sequencing in that respect, we always, so maybe go a little bit back and say that what we want for a sow farm, for example, is to have a stable sow farm. Even if we are vaccinating uh, the sows, we want to have the output of uh, purse virus negative piglets. So first of all, we want purse virus negative piglets born, and then we want to wean purse virus negative piglets. Later on, we want to have them purse virus negative out of the nursery and then out of the finishing as well. But the starting point here is always the sows and a stable herd. When we talk about purse sequencing in that respect, we can use that kind of checking. First of all, if I have a purse positive uh, in my finishes, 
do that origin from the south? Is it the same sequence we have with the south, or is it something different? Meaning that uh, if the origin is not the same, or the sequence is not the same as you have in your south, you must have a break in your biosecurity somewhere in between. You're bringing in virus from the outside during that process. And you get some idea of timetable when you might have had that break because your results are today, but I don't know how quickly you would be seeing the necessity of sequencing and finding this virus in the finishing stage. You know, has this event happened some time ago or is PERS a very rapidly developing infection and could have been quite recent? It could have been quite recent and it uh, it can be very fast. So you could have a virus introduction today and tomorrow you have basically have, or in a week you have all the, all the, the animals infected. Uh, uh, or it can be slow. So you never know with a purse infection if it's fast or slow. On normal conditions, if you have, um, you could say, a normal type 1 virus infection is not very bad, it would be, be a quite slow infection. But on the other hand, if you have a very aggressive one that uh, creates a lot of very high virus titers, it could infect a lot of animals very fast. So just looking at that, and, and that is important maybe when we talk about sequencing, just to mention that as well, that just looking at the nucleotide sequence of a virus does not give you any hints of if you have you are dealing with a, a good or a bad PERS virus, so to say. In terms of virulence or it, in virulence, uh, pathogenicity, yes. Uh, yes. will uh, will the animals become sick? You have no clue just looking at the nucleotides. It would be the same as if I'm saying, yeah, I know that all the best uh, family they are bad. You know that's that's not true. Um, so you have to be much more specific. You cannot just look at the family name and then you know if a good or bad person. Everybody is individual. And the same with PERS virus. Just knowing a short uh, piece of uh, the nucleotide sequence does not tell you anything about the virulence or pathogenicity. And how do you do that from your experience or the farm situation? Or what, what is the reliable way to judge that? This this is really uh, tricky actually because you only the only tool you have here is actually to look at the animals, and that's what uh, what old veterinarians would tell you. If all fails, have a look at the animals. <laughs> yes. Uh, Are they breathing? Yes. And that would be exactly the same here. There's there's nothing in a lab that can give you that hint if this uh, this is a good or a bad virus, if it's a nasty one or if it's a baby. It behaves like a baby. You have to go and look at the animals. And then it becomes even more tricky because we know that we could take the same virus, even if I took it directly out of pigs from one farm, where it behaved very bad, we can put it into pigs in another farm and nothing, absolutely nothing would happen. Uh, researchers would know that very well because very often we like to have uh, challenging viruses and use them in a lab uh, when we do challenge studies and we try to look for nasty viruses to do those challenges and very often when we put them into the lab then uh, all of a sudden they behave like a baby. So 
This is this is very tricky, and there's actually only one way to study it, and that is go to a specific farm and then identify the virus that you have there. Yeah, but it, but it, that is as uh, that's an opinion more than a, a fact-based uh, thing, is it? Then you know, it's what your gut feel is about those what you're seeing on the farm, or can you measure anything which substantiates I'm, I'm, it? I'm, I'm sure that some farmers would say that it's more than a gut feeling when you have a huge number of stillborns or sows sure, dying sure. or abortions. Sure. So yes, for sure yeah. you can measure it. But so I, if I, you have abortions and, and stillborn piglets and you identify yes, a specific yes, virus from those, yes. you know in this situation this virus behaves yes, badly. Yes. And of course, there's some hints. So we know the best example probably is uh, highly pathogenic uh, PERS viruses from, from Asia. We know that if we put them into another farm, they will behave badly as well. But it's still, uh, it's still not linked to anything we can see in the, in the in sequence. the genetic identity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, somewhere there. But you said about you know, f what the farmer would say. I think farmers would also say to you, what is the reason for sequencing to identify something that's already happened on my farm? Surely what I want to do is get rid of it or control it. Yeah. And it's all very well blocking that hole in your biosecurity, but the, the damage is done. So yeah. you know, what, what, before I start blocking biosecurity and going through my steps of combat, what, do, what should I be doing in terms of uh, re reacting or responding to the current situation that you've identified. Yes, so so you're right, absolutely right. If you look beside the the actual um, epidemiological events or studying that, the behavior or what you sh your action on the farm is not uh, dependent on the sequencing. So you do not need to know the sequence of a virus to act. Or you could also say in another way that, that knowing the sequence does not change no. what you need to do. So that is always they that would always be the same. And what we aim for again uh, is a stable sow herd with an output of pers virus negative piglets. And I think that is actually not that hard. You could say I'm sure now some farmers and vets would not agree with me, but. but we actually know, uh, to put it in another way, we actually know what you should do in order to control PERS. So you need to, to stick to the, the 10 management rules of PERS, uh, PERS management rules, and we could share that later on if, if somebody wants those. Uh, and so that is about cross-fostering of pigs, uh, not uh, maintaining the PERS virus in the different compartments by mixing picks and so on. I don't think we will go into the details of that, but, but that's something we could share. This is something you have to do. You need to uh, immunize your animals so that you have no susceptible animals. And so the program you need to follow if you have a purse infection on your farm is, uh, you could say, relative simple. Maybe it's not easy to do, but it's relative simple. It's been so that, proven time and again. It's proven, it? yeah. So that's have a that's have a a good management and a strict flow of pigs, immunizing the animals, the sows and the piglets, in the whole herd vaccination program. Okay. That's basically what you have to do, and that does not change. 
that completes the first episode of this podcast, but please stay tuned for the second episode, which is available. <laughs>